Yeah, I just uh, again want to reinforce Conrad's warm welcome and um, also say how good it is for us to be back. Uh, we've been away for several weeks, weekends um, with various responsibilities and a holiday, so um, it is great to be back with, with you all and really just again reinforce Conrad's welcome. That, uh, it's great to have some guests with us too, so super awesome. Hey, I just want to um, make a little bit of an assumption and... And I think that it's probably fair to say, uh, at, at some point, all of us have had someone say something untrue about you, right? So maybe it's at work and, you know, perhaps you've been falsely accused of ripping off the clients or something. Maybe it's um, in the family, it's alleged that you're showing favoritism or something. Maybe it's at school. You've been accused of cheating on an exam, or maybe it's in some sort of sport and there's some sort of like um, claim that you've been using drugs or some sort of supplement or something. I don't know. I don't know, I don't know if there's many professional athletes in the room, but that was, that was a suggestion. Anyway, at some point, someone has said something that is unfair and untrue about you. They've twisted the truth, and it's really it's, it's damaged your reputation. And so my question is, what do you do in that situation? I think if we're honest, all of us would simply start by protesting our innocence. We would, we would try to right the wrongs, we would try to uphold the truth, and, and just tell people how it really is to kind of repair our reputation. But what if you don't have a chance to stand up for yourself? What if you cannot counter some of those false claims? What, what if you are branded as someone that you're not? Uh, that's, that's really tough. Well, that actually happened to a woman who lived 2,000 years ago, and for the last 2,000 years, this woman has had many, many labels. She's been labeled as a sex worker, as a sinner, as a saint, as a disciple, as a witness, as a wife, and, and some of those claims on her character are unfair and untrue, but unfortunately this woman was unable to defend herself, and for centuries her reputation was tarnished. Now if you've been with us for a while, you'll know that um, back in April we, we kicked off a, a teaching series called Saints and Sinners, and we really just were doing a bit of a deep dive into some stories of some people who lived in the ancient Near East, and their stories were recorded in the Bible. And, and back in April, when we first started the series, you might have discovered <coughs> that, that despite the differences of geography, of time, of culture, in many ways, these people were very similar to us. They knew joy and they knew pain. They had struggles and successes, but in the midst of their flaws and their faithfulness, God showed them grace. And so we actually picked up the series. Last week, Kathy uh, Turner spoke on John the Baptist. And this morning, I want to introduce you to a lady called Mary of Magdala, or more commonly known as Mary of Magdalene. And Mary's story is in, in the Bible, in the New Testament part of the Bible, and she is a really inspirational woman, but her character is, has been surrounded by controversy for the last 2,000 years. So just for an example, in the year 591, Pope Gregory declared that Mary was a prostitute. 
Uh, he based that on a false assumption of, of a misreading of Luke chapter 7 and Luke chapter 8, and he kind of conflated the two. And it wasn't until 1969, almost 1,400 years later, that the Roman Catholic Church officially corrected Pope Gregory's mistake. But for 1,400 years, that did not help Mary's reputation. And in the year 2003, uh, an American author called Dan Brown, he wrote a book called The Da Vinci Code. It was also turned into a film. Some of you might have seen the film or read the book. And anyway, Dan Brown in the story, he presents Mary and Jesus as being married and as having a daughter. And so what Dan Brown did was he revised this really obscure medieval myth and um, most historians would agree that that suggestion just really lacks historical reliability and, and authenticity. But, but Pope Gregory's pronouncement and, and Dan Brown's book, both which are based on fiction rather than fact, unfortunately they've really kind of popularized the perceptions of Mary. And the sad reality is that the real character of this woman has been largely overlooked. So we're just trying to peel back some of those layers this morning, maybe unpack some snapshots of Mary's life and legacy and really get a glimpse of who she was, the journey that she was on, the legacy that she's left us, her character, and look at some scenes and her life is recorded in the Bible. So the first one we're going to look at is in Luke chapter 8. If you've got a Bible... Uh, with you or on your phone, you're welcome to turn there or swipe there or whatever, but I'm going to put it up on the screen uh, in case you haven't. So anyway, this is what we read in Luke chapter 8. Just as a way of background, Luke was uh, one of the biographers of Jesus, and Luke was a real details guy. He was a doctor, a medical doctor, but also a historian. So he was recording, he really focused on recording the important information getting across the essence of it. Anyway, this is what he writes in the start of Luke chapter 8. Jesus began a tour of the nearby towns and villages, preaching and announcing the good news about the kingdom of God. He took his 12 disciples with him, along with some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Among them was Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons, Joanna, the wife of Jusa, Herod's business manager, Susanna, and many other women who were contributing from their own resources to support Jesus and his disciples. Now Luke recalls some fascinating details about the women who followed Jesus. So you're possibly aware Jesus had 12 disciples and they were all men. But Jesus also included women in his inner circle of followers. Now in a patriarchal society like the first century, this was a radical move. And Jesus actually pushed back on the limitations that were placed on women. He treated women with, with dignity and, and respect. He gave them the honor that they deserved. So, for example, in the Jewish culture, women were not supposed to learn from a rabbi. They weren't supposed to learn from a religious teacher. But inviting, by inviting women to join with him, to travel with him, and to experience his teaching, Jesus is showing that all people, men and women, have worth and importance to God. Perhaps what's more fascinating is that Mary and the other women were financing Jesus' ministry. You'll see there they were contributing from their own resources to support Jesus and his disciples. 
So it's likely that several of these women were women of means. They had wealth, they had resources which they could draw upon. And Mary probably was in that same category. It's likely that she had wealth. Because what's unusual about Mary is that she was referenced uh, not by her husband or by her son. So see, for example, Joanna was referenced as the wife of Chusa. But Mary is identified by her hometown, by the town that she's from. And so in the first century, Magdala was, it was a fishing village on the, on the shores of Lake Galilee. So it's possible that Mary had no husband or, or had no children to be identified from, and, and that meant that she would probably be able to choose how she could use her own resources. Which is even more remarkable given the history that Mary had. According to the text, Jesus had cleared Mary from seven demons. So scholars have a range of, of opinions on this. Some think that this was a literal exorcism where Jesus freed Mary from demonic possession. Other scholars think it was more of a euphemism. Perhaps Jesus helped her with a mental illness or some sort of physical problem. But whatever challenges Mary was facing, the point is that when she met Jesus, he completely restored her. Jesus frees her from whatever is holding her back. He, he encourages her, he enables her to be the woman that he created her to be. And I think there's a really powerful lesson in that for all of us. When we humble ourselves before Jesus, when we admit that we need help, when we say we can't do this on our own, Jesus willingly, Jesus graciously frees us from our past. And maybe, maybe like Mary, maybe you have suffered <clears throat> spiritually, mentally, physically from some problems in your past. Whatever it is, it's had power over you. It's, it's held you back. Well, friends, I want to encourage you that Jesus can restore you. He can free you from your bondage. He can lift those burdens from you. He did it for Mary. He's done it for countless Christians, and he can do it for you. Now, Mary was one of the first to experience the freedom that Jesus brought. And several years later, the Apostle Paul, he also experienced the transformation that Jesus brings. And after he experienced that, this is what he wrote. He said, God has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Well, Mary was really grateful for that restoration. In fact, according to the Bible, Mary and the other woman traveled with Jesus from town to town. So it's likely that they heard Jesus teach truth to the crowds. It's likely they saw him heal the sick and, and feed the hungry and, and befriend the lonely. It's possible that, that Mary and the other woman were present even at pivotal moments in Jesus' ministry. It's not recorded in the text, but it's probable that they were present when Jesus was betrayed and arrested. Chances are they were among the crowds when, he, uh, when his death was demanded. They certainly would have been aware that he was beaten and mocked. And they definitely would have seen him march to the edge of the city and be nailed to a cross. In fact, if you read through 
All four of the biographers of Jesus record that Mary and the other woman were present at the foot of the cross. And so in doing that, Mary and the other woman were courageous. In fact, according to the accounts of Jesus' execution, the names of many of his male followers are conspicuously absent. It seems like most of the men who followed Jesus bailed. They'd abandoned Jesus in his most desperate time of need, Many of Jesus' male followers deserted and denied their teacher. But not the woman. They were committed to the cause despite the pressures and the pains, despite the the agony of seeing Jesus beaten and bloodied. Mary and the other women were faithful to the end. In fact, their very presence showed their care and compassion for their saviour and for their friend. You know, that care and compassion of those women at the cross has been echoed down through the centuries. Matt Creener, a lady who lived in the 3rd, 4th century, she set up hospitals for the sick. Claire of Assisi, she looked after the poor and the hungry. Catherine of Siena, she established orphanages for children. Katerina Luther, she hosted students in her house fed them. Elizabeth Fry, she improved, worked hard to improve the conditions of prisoners. Florence Nightingale, she cared for soldiers who were wounded in battle. Catherine Booth, Pandita Ramabai, Amy Carmichael, Mother Teresa, they cared for the outsiders, for the outcasts in the slums of the cities that they lived. And you know, Mary was at the forefront of that legacy. Her faithful care and compassion for others was a really crucial characteristic. And I think, I think we would do well to follow that. Well, perhaps the most significant moment of Mary's life <clears throat> comes after Jesus' death. Luke picks up the story in chapter 23. I'm just going to flick there. This is what we read. As his, Jesus' body was taken away, the woman from Galilee followed and saw the tomb where his body was placed. Then they went home and prepared spices and ointments to anoint his body. But by the time they were finished, the Sabbath had begun, so they rested as required by the law. John picks up the story in chapter 20. Mary was standing outside the tomb. Oh, sorry, early on, early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, John. She said... They have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Now keep in mind a really important detail here. For a long time, Jesus had been telling his followers that he would die and that he would come back to life. In fact, Mark is one of the biographers of Jesus, and he records on three separate occasions that Jesus said the Son of Man, his favorite designation for himself, the Son of Man would die, and then he would rise from the dead. But despite all those predictions about resurrection, Mary is convinced that Jesus' body has been stolen by the authorities. They have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him, she said. Mary could just, she could not comprehend that Jesus had defeated death, that he had risen from the dead. Let's read on in the chapter. 
Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will go and get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which is Hebrew for teacher. I think there is a a beauty in that moment. Mary is weeping over the death of Jesus. She's grieving, not just for the loss of his body, but the loss of his presence. And then Jesus graciously, gently calls her by name. Mary. Can you imagine the joy that would just come flooding back into her heart where she hears that familiar voice and she realizes that she's standing outside an empty tomb, not with a corpse, but with the creator of the universe, not with a gardener, but with the teacher, her friend, and her Lord. And so look what happens next. Jesus said, Go find my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told him, I have seen the Lord. Then she gave him, then she gave them his message. You know, as soon as uh, Mary realizes that Jesus is alive again, he gives her a message, a responsibility. And, And in a sense, Mary is like, the first Christian. You think about it, she's the first person to believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead. She's the first person to encounter the resurrected Jesus. And I believe it's no accident that Mary is the first Christian. I mean, Jesus could have arranged to make any of his followers the first messenger, but he chose Mary. In a patriarchal society, He chose a woman, not a man. He chose someone with a checkered past, not an upstanding citizen of the community. He chose someone from the back room, one of his support team, not one of his prominent disciples. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you've done, my grace is not based on gender or pedigree, or intellect, or talent, or effort, or even your track record. I have come to call those who admit their failings and their flaws. I've come to save you, not through your work, but through my work. And in that moment, Mary gets it. She realizes that Jesus' death and resurrection was part of the plan to flip the script on human history. There's nothing that we could do to earn right standing before God, that Jesus saves us by his grace. If we humble ourselves, if we confess our sin, if we trust that Jesus is who he says he is and that he can do what he says he will do, we can live new lives 
full of his goodness and truth. Mary gets that. She gets all of that. And her response is just inspirational. This is only a guess, but, but I picture Mary falling at Jesus' feet, grateful for his presence and his power. And you know, right from that first encounter with Jesus years earlier, Mary's whole life has been full of gratefulness. Once Jesus freed her from her bondage, Mary was thankful and grateful on every occasion that we've seen her. She generously gives her money as a response to support Jesus' ministry. She stands strong at the foot of the cross while others hid in fear. After his death, she wants to honor Jesus' memory, so she goes to pay her respects to his body. And then when she meets the resurrected Jesus, she is grateful for his return. In every moment, Mary has the attitude of gratitude. How about you, but I, I really think that there is something for all of us to take away from Mary's story. Perhaps like Mary, you <clears throat> need to humbly seek some help with some problems. Perhaps like Mary, you could be generous with your time and resources. Perhaps like Mary, you could show compassion for those in need or be courageous uh, under pressure. Perhaps like Mary, you could be faithful to the end or, or a, a powerful witness to Jesus. Perhaps like Mary, you could be grateful for all that Jesus has done for you. I think it's sad that a lot of these characteristics of Mary have been overlooked throughout the centuries. Because she's a remarkable woman with, with a beautiful heart, and I think she's been unfairly misrepresented by a whole lot of fictional myths over the years. So, I just simply want to encourage you with, with two things. The first one is this. To maybe think about someone who, who you know who might have a bit of a rough reputation. If you're not sure, it's probably someone that you'd try to avoid. <laughs> Or someone who's maybe experienced some sort of scandal, some sort of shame. You have a low level of respect for them or something like that. Consider how you could show God's grace to that person. How you could share God's grace to that person. Perhaps you need to look past their gender or their pedigree or their track record. Maybe you need to peel back some of the things that have been said that might be unfair or might be untrue. And just... Consider how you could share God's grace with them. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. Maybe if you want to follow Mary's example, which of those characteristics that we've just touched upon do you want to see more of in your life? So as we close, I'm just going to give you a moment to pause and just think about how you can see people for really are, how they really are, how you can show grace to people and how you can put some of these characteristics in your life. Just, just a moment by yourself, quietly. God, we are really grateful for the story of Mary, this woman who lived 2,000 years ago. Her life and her legacy still speaks to us today. And so I just ask that we would all know that we are saved by your grace. And in response, may we be humble generous, compassionate, courageous, faithful, grateful. Maybe, may we witness your power and your presence in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.
Hey, thanks. I'm just going to invite Linda on the band back.